a couple of weeks ago I told you that the most popular movie worldwide to date is a movie called The Avengers Infinity War. That's true worldwide, but the movie that has made the most money in America in 2018 is the movie that came just before it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Y'all didn't even know that was a thing, did you? The Marvel Cinematic Universe, these 18 movies over 10 years that have grossed well close to $20 billion, the most popular movie in America in 2018, according to the box office, is Black Panther. Now, Black Panther is the story of the transition in power in a kingdom called Wakanda to the man at the top, the man that was speaking to Chala. Wakanda is an interesting place in both comic book history and in movie history because it tells the story, we actually have a, a kind of a stylized picture, of a technologically advanced society that has existed without the world's knowledge at all. In fact, as you can see, they have flying cars. They have the ability, their technology, medical technology, to heal things that have never been healed before. They have the ability to um, perform tasks that are just thought about in science fiction movies according to this movie. And it's interesting because they have decided to live by themselves, insulated from the rest of the world. And so Wakanda is a kingdom that is literally has a force field built around it, and you can't get in unless you know how to get in. A wall is built to the outside world, and they have insulated themselves inside. The new king that comes to power begins to think that perhaps with all that's going on in the world, the 18 movies have aliens coming and descending and destroying parts of the earth, that maybe it's time that they unveiled themselves to the world. There are concerns about that. What are they going to do to us? How are they going to treat us? What are they going to do with our technology? Are they going to use it to kill more people? And the question, we've talked about this each time we've done one of these movies, the question at the center of the entire movie is this. What is our responsibility to the world? This mythical culture from comic book lore Ask the question, what is their responsibility? Now, they've been doing some things, and so their king, who is the superhero Black Panther, will go out into the world and will, will save people in certain circumstances or adjust other things. But overall discussion is, what is our responsibility to the world? Another question that could be asked is, what are we supposed to do with what we've been given? Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Here's what I want to do today. I want to look at a parable about that very thing. And then ask the question, what is our responsibility to the world? Matthew chapter 25, we're going to begin in verse 14. This is Jesus telling parables about the kingdom of God, what it's like in this rule and reign of God. Jesus told many parables about the kingdom of God, and this is 
perhaps one of his most famous, but I want us to think about it in light of the question of what our responsibility is to the world. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on the journey. Let's stop there for just a moment because Jesus is telling the story. and It's one of those stories that it takes us a moment to get back into the mindset of the people to whom he's talking. He's having conversations with people. We have to remember they didn't have to have interpretation about what it meant. Well, at least not what the money figures were. You see, talents, we hear talents, I think about talented. Right? When I hear, man, they've got some talent. We don't think money. What do you think? You think ability, right? They've got some special ability. I was watching uh, videos yesterday of one of, uh, I, know, I know some of you are Kentucky basketball fans here, and I know some of you are really, really excited about the coming year. You've got the best recruiting class you've ever had, which Kentucky has every year. But I was looking at some of the information on Duke's recruiting class this year. They've got a kid that is 6'7", 275 pounds, and can jump from the free throw line and dunk it. Now, just to give you an idea, that's like a college offensive lineman dunking from the free throw line. You know what that's called? Talent. Like, you, you just have talent, right? I remember when I was, uh, when I was pastoring in Ripley, um, the uh, Bank of Ripley we had many representatives, uh, obviously, at our church, this small-town church. Bank of Ripley, president of Bank of Ripley, um, who just ran for governor, was one of my deacons. And so um, they, at Bank of Ripley, they always had um, three tickets to the Grizzlies game, one pair, and all you had to do was sign up and you could go. And so you just pick a game, you sign up, nobody had them, you could get them and go to their customers. They did that. And they were good seats. And I remember walking in to that seat for the first time, sitting down, and we were right next to the tunnel where the guys come out. And that night the Grizzlies were playing the Detroit Pistons, and some of you won't remember this name, but there was a guy with the Detroit Pistons named Rasheed Wallace. He's a little bit of a renegade, rough guy. And Sheed was huge. I was looking out there at this one guy on the court, and I was like, man, that dude is short. Like, I mean, I could take him. Right? Now look in the program. 6'3". I can't take him. He's not sure he's tall, right? Like, we think talent, we think God-given abilities. That's not what's being talked about here. It's talked about money, and talent was a weight. Now we have a little trouble understanding it actually how much this is that's being given, because we don't know exactly how much a talent weight was, like how much that weighed. But our best understanding of what it was is that a talent was somewhere around 20 years of wages. That, that's a lot. Right? So in modern day, if you were just to take the average income of an American and give 20 years of that, that one talent would be somewhere in the $600,000 range. See, when I was a kid, I used to feel bad for the kid with one talent. Anybody else here ever felt like that? Well, he just got one. 
poor little him. It'd be okay if somebody just give me one $600,000. Can I get an amen in the house with a little? No. Y'all didn't know I was going to talk about materialism now. All right, let's go. No. So if you got five talents, you want to do some quick math? How much is that? Three million. So he gives one guy three million dollars. He gives another guy 1.2. And he gives the last guy 600 grand. First of all, this dude's rich. Right? And he's going on a journey. And he tells him, you take care of my money. Take care of it. Work on it. Have it. It's yours to do what you wish with. But I'm coming back. Verse 16. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had one went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, after how long? A long time, right? What's a long time? A long time, whatever that is. The master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. How would y'all do? What, what went on? And the man who received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more. Do you sense the excitement in his voice, the, 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 the enthusiasm that's there? His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached him. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more. Notice the enthusiasm, the excitement. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received $600,000 approached and said, Master, I knew you. I know who you are. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seeds. So I was afraid. I went off. Hid your talent in the ground. See what you have, what is already yours. This is interesting, right? The guy didn't lose any money. Right? He didn't lose anything. He's not bringing back half. None of it got stolen. He says, what you gave to me, exactly have I given back to you. Look at the servant's reply. Now, I mean, the master's reply. Now, most of us, if we didn't already know the parable, if we were just in real life situations and think, you're here, you're the master, you give out 600 grand, and he comes back and he says, man, I'm sorry, I didn't do a whole lot with it. But I, I didn't lose any money for you, so here's your $600,000 back. Most of us would say, well, well thank you. I'm sorry. You know, that's okay. That's okay. You're okay. Right? Like, you're okay. You do okay. Like, I understand. Man, I was really, I, mean, I know, but you're really excited about the other ones. Well, it does make me a lot of money. Yeah, I'm excited about that, but you're, you're fine. You're fine. No, no harm done. Right? No blood, no foul. No harm. None. We're good. Is that what Jesus says the master did? No. It's one of the harshest rebukes in all the parables. 
His master replied, You, what does he call him? Wicked or evil. You wicked, evil, lazy servant. Now, we don't have any indication from this passage that the guy was lazy. From all we know, he continued to do his work like he had always done his work. He continued to serve his master like he had always served his master. He just took the 600,000, the one talent, and he buried it out in the field so he wouldn't lose it, remembered where it was, marked where it was, so when his master came back, he was ready for it. And that's all we know about it. But the master says to him, You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would receive my money back with interest when I return. Now, listen, some people take this passage and they say, that's the point. If you're going to do nothing, put it in a bank somewhere. That's not what the point of the message is here. Y'all see that, right? Nothing against bankers or banks. Verse 28. So take a talent from him and give it to the one who had ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness. Wait a minute. I mean, you already call him wicked, lazy. Now you're throwing him outside where he can't, has to fend for himself? Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when you read a parable that Jesus tells, the thing that you have to do is you have to figure out, do the characters in the story represent somebody? And if they do, who do they represent? And then when we get the characters in the story figured out, what is the point of the story? What is the the one theme running through the story? And sometimes what happens is we get so in the weeds of the details of what's going on in the parable that we miss the point. And so I want to tell you that, yes, the characters in this parable represent somebody the master represents who Jesus God right the master who's gone away who's coming back who do the servants represent us now this is going to be some basic questions okay who are we supposed to be like servants one and two or servant three one and two What's the difference between servant one and two and servant three? What's the difference? Did nothing with what he had. But what did the other two do? They took risks. But we know the action that they took is that they put themselves on the line. They could have lost the money. And here's what is understood in this passage of Scripture, is that in spite of the fact of whether they would have lost the money or not, that they were taking a risk and they get lauded for the risk-taking lifestyle. Right? What is the last man condemned for for not doing anything? For not investing? And what kept him from investing? What kept him from even putting it in the bank? What kept him from doing anything He was worried about his comfort and his security. Here's the message of this parable. We're going to bring this all back together. Trust me, we're getting there, all right? The message of this parable is, you cannot live your life as God intended without taking risk. 
one of the most difficult messages for the American church to hear is that God did not come to give us a safe and comfortable life. That is not the intention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The intention is not to bring us to a place where we can relax and enjoy our comfort. I tried this week to think of a biblical example of someone who was used in a mighty way by God that did not take a risk. But people who take risks are throughout the Bible. Amen? You tell me. Yeah, I got some written down, but you, 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 you good Bible students. Tell me some people in the Bible that were used by God after they took a risk. Who was that? Daniel. Noah. Gideon. So let's talk about that. We'll, we'll, we'll keep, keep, these, keep, keep them coming. Okay? We're going to talk about them. Daniel, right? What kind of risk did he take? Well, he didn't eat what the king told him to eat. That could have caused him death. He didn't bow when the king told him to bow. All that happened is he got thrown into a den full of hungry lions. Right? Noah. What kind of risk did Noah take? He built a boat because it was going to rain for 40 days and it never rained before in the history of the earth. Do you realize that, right? Just a bit fed by moisture. Rain didn't come. And so Noah's not only telling it's going to rain, a flood. They're like, what's rain? He built an ark. How long did it take him to build that ark? A few decades. Daniel, Noah, Gideon. We talked about Gideon a few weeks ago, right? Your army's too big, Gideon. Get your army down. Then go attack the most powerful nation on earth. Just get your army down. Got too many guys to fight. That's what all our politicians say. We got too many guys fighting for us. Somebody else. Bible. People that took risk and they were used mightily by God. David. Moses. The disciples. Abraham. Leave everything you know, your family, all of it. Get up and go. Where am I going? God, wherever I tell you. David. Jacob. David, get out there. Fight that giant. Ruth. Esther. Joseph. Basically, we can name any character in the Bible used by God, right? David and Goliath. Walk out there and face the giant. One of my favorite stories, Jonathan and the armor bearer. Y'all know that story? That's right. Jonathan and the armor bearer is there. It says that the Philistines have got all the blacksmiths. They got all the people making swords. There's one sword in Israel, and Jonathan don't have it. So armor bearer's with him. My favorite line of that, my, my, it's one of my favorite lines in all the Bible. I know y'all hear me say that every week, but the Bible's full of good stuff, right? Right? One of my favorite lines in the whole Bible is he's getting ready to go up to take on the entire Philistine army while his dad, the king and captain of the army, is under a tree trying to figure out what to do. And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer, who he is told is going with him. Would you want to be the armor bearer? And he says, come on, let's go. We're going to charge up that mountain. We're going to fight the Philistines and maybe God will do something. How many of you would prefer something more than a maybe? And he goes and God uses him. 
Esther, you got to go tell the king not to do this thing he's supposed to do. Even though in that society, if you walk in and tell the king he's not going to do what he says he's going to do, you could die. Nehemiah, same thing. You need to ask to quit your job and to move back to the homeland that you've never been to before so that you can take care of the people there because you've got something on your heart. Paul, i got to go down to Jerusalem and when I get there, they're probably going to arrest me. But it's time to go. Ten of the eleven apostles that remained when Jesus ascended to the Father died brutal deaths. And the only one that didn't was John, who died supposedly after being exiled to the island of Patmos. But do you know why he was exiled to Patmos? Because they tried to boil him in hot oil and he didn't die. They couldn't kill him. So they sent him to Patmos, and the story is told that he did not die on Patmos, but that when the overthrown uh, emperor happened, he came back to the city. Here's the truth. The Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk in your life, or you waste your life. And the story of the parable of the talents Two guys took it. And when did it happen? It happened after a couple of months when they realized, well, I ain't coming back. I'm going to do something with the money. When does it say it happened? Immediately. You know what immediately means in the original language? Right then. Immediately. John Piper has said, it is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on earth will turn out for us and that we take risks for the cause of of God. So what if we don't? Well, there's a great example in Scripture of somebody or some people that did not. It's called the nation of Israel. Remember when the ten spies came back? Man, it's just like God said, but we can't go. They too big. What happens? They end up wandering in the desert. So what would a risk look like for you in living out your call in Christ? Maybe it's a divinely directed career change. Maybe it's being a part of an overseas mission trip. Maybe it's um, encouraging adoption, either in your family or other families. Maybe it's a new ministry that someone's called to. Or maybe it's more personal than all of that. Maybe it's forgiving someone who wronged you. Maybe it's sharing Christ with your neighbor, even though you have very little in common with them. Maybe it's reordering your marriage around the principles of Christ. Maybe it's changing your family schedule to allow more time to pursue what God has called you to pursue. Maybe it's running your business with intention or asking for forgiveness in places that you haven't. Here's what I know. Anytime you are obedient to the Lord in your life, it will involve risk. Now here's the question. What gave those two guys, the first two in the parable, the ability to risk when the third one was scared? And I think there are a couple of things that we see in their enthusiasm for the risk and the enthusiasm in what they've done that helps us to think about our own lives and what God intends. First of all, if we want to truly live with risk in our lives, we must trust in the goodness of God. 
Now again, who is this about? Who is the master in this story that we are to think of in real life as the master? It's God, right? It's Jesus. When you get to the third guy, what is the reason he gives for not doing what the other two did? He says, because I knew you were a hard, harsh man. You know another way to say that? I thought you were mean. Right? If you have a child come home and says, my teacher was a little harsh today. First of all, that's not how they're going to say it. But what they mean is they weren't very nice. These other two guys knew that even though he was a good businessman, even though he was somebody that reaped where he did not sow and all that, they, they may have known that about him. What they realized is that this was a man who they could trust in him. And we can trust in the goodness of God. We know He is good. He is not deceptive. He is not wishing us to fail. He is not hoping us to fail. The best life you can live on this earth is risking whatever you have for the glory of following God's plan. And we know He's for us, right? Romans 8 tells us that. We've got that up on the screen. We know that Romans 8 tells us that who is it that can be against us if God is for us? If God is for us, who can stand against us? And then it tells us the reason we can trust God, right? He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. He says, if you ever doubt the love of God, that God is for you, because the first question to ask the question, if God is for us, in the original language, that is a word that really means since God is for us, or because God is for us. We know God is for us. How do we know God is for us? Because He gave us His Son. He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. And then he goes on to say this. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Y'all know what everything means, right? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. And if God justifies us, who can accuse you of anything? You've been pardoned by the blood of Jesus. No accusation will stick. You're like Teflon, nonstick. Because God's the only one that can truly condemn, and He's justified you, so He's justified, and nobody can condemn you. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, He's been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? In affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore. Now realize, that's spoken by a guy who would be killed because he was a believer. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It doesn't matter the results of the risk. If you're risking for God, you are blessed beyond all measure. And then he says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves us. How do we know? The cross. 
He gave up everything for us. He risked it all for us. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the central figure, Aslan, represents Christ as a lion. And when the young lady, Lucy, who's the young girl, realizes that Aslan is a lion and not a man, she's a little scared. And she says to the other character, is he safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. The thing we know about our God is he's good. The second thing we know is that we can trust in God's power. His ability. He doesn't deny the fact that he is a man that is able to do things that nobody else can do to reap where he has not sown. Trust in his power. He has unmatched power. He is both good and he is great. He is unmatched in his power in all the universe. So when you risk for Jesus, you're risking for the most powerful man in the universe. The most powerful being in the universe. How do we know? The resurrection. Colossians 1 tells us about Jesus. Unbelievable picture of who he is and what he's about. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That quote that I just read from uh, Lot of the Witch in the World, but I've used that many times. But I haven't used what comes immediately after that, and I think it's important in light of our understanding of who God is for us to realize it as well. And so, and so Lucy asks, is he quite safe? And the beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And then he says this, and he's the king, I tell you. He's in control. He's a good Ruler. And when our lives intersect with our understanding of what God has called us to do, our lives are to be directed in a way that we measure what we're doing by the compassion of the cross and the power of the resurrection and ask if what we're attempting to do for the Lord fall in line with His sacrifice and His power. D.O. Moody once asked, if God said, if God be your partner, make big plans. Jesus didn't die to make us a comfortable church who didn't have any impact on our community. He died that the nations would come and worship. He has a global agenda of which you and I are a part. And when he looks at these men two of whom in the parable took immediately and did something with what they had been given, he praises them for their action and their risk and their return. When he looks at the one who didn't do anything and buried it in the ground and lived a normal life like everybody else with his talents buried in the ground, he looks at him and he calls him evil and lazy. So where are you? What about you? 
John Wesley's mom told him, Only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you risking? What are you willing to risk? We were in Denver last year on our um, tour with the North American Mission Board. Before we had agreed to partner with Chris Phillips or any of that, they took us on a tour of several different um, church plants around the city. And one of them was called Summit Denver. They've been a church that had just been around for a few years, and they went out there, they started with, as, a, as a plant from a church in North Carolina, and they took 30 people to Denver, and they started this church, and in two years they grew to 150 buildings, had outgrown their old building, and they needed a new one, and they saw a building in the neighborhood they wanted to be in for sale, but because it was in an ideal part of town, it was very expensive. That's what one of their pastors said about it. Honestly, it made no sense for us to expect the owner to sell us the building. It's one of the most up-and-coming parts of the city, just a few blocks from Coors Field where the Rockies play. It's undergoing massive reconstruction. New bars, new restaurants, new coffee shops popping up on every corner. Property values are skyrocketing. And on top of that, this owner is a hotshot investor who is known for getting his way in business dealings. One of our pastors, Andy, had gotten to know him, and so he approached the, the owner and asked if he would sell to us. And Andy was a nervous wreck in that meeting. He decided to walk around the building three times praying because he was so nervous. Also, he said he just read the story of Joshua and Jericho and thought he could try anything. And so he went into the meeting with the hotshot investor, told him about his vision for the church, and then he looks at this hotshot, non-believing investor, and he says, and I want to tell you something right now that I firmly believe. You don't own this building. The owner gave him a puzzled look, and Andy, the pastor, said, Your name be on the piece of paper that says you own this building, but God owns this building. And we think he wants you to sell this building to us. And I'm telling you this as a friend. If you don't sell this building to us, God is going to hold you accountable for that. They didn't teach me that in seminary. All right, I just want you to know. The owner agreed to sell him the property for less than market value at cost to what he had spent on it. Well, then the bank got involved. It seems like I'm talking bad about banks today. I don't mean to. The bank said, we'll sell you the building, but you've got to bring $150,000 in on the day of closing to assure the loan. Closing was in 10 days. They didn't have $150,000. So they had 10 days to get $150,000 or the deal was dead. So the pastor walked into their church gathering the next day and he lays it out to his people. A church of 150 people. Young, many working their first jobs, barely scraping by. And he says, I'm calling you to give sacrificially. And because they didn't know what else to do, they prayed. He said it was the hardest people he'd ever seen prayed, prayed. People were weeping. People were repenting of things they had bought that they didn't need. And said, if I not bought that, I could give that to the church. People started calling friends and families and things around them and asking them for the need, what they needed. One of the guys told his brother, who's a high schooler, what was happening. His brother called and said he was sending a check for $90. 
that he called back two days later and said that he had been convicted that he could do more. He'd been saving up money for a new PS4 that was coming out two days later, and he was going to send the $500 he had saved up for his PS4 to them. People emptied their savings and in their everything they had. They had a couple that was in the process of adopting that felt God was saying, not now. And they emptied their savings that they've been saving up for that and they put it into the church. And in four days, they didn't raise $150,000. They raised $250,000. The church planning pastor went to the church when they were going to announce it that day. And he said, I got to be there this Sunday when Brian announced it to the congregation, and it was unlike anything I've ever seen. People were literally weeping because they were so blown away by what God had done. One member said, when we moved out here, we moved for life. We bought a house, we're raising a family, but this says to our city, we're here to stay, and we believe God is going to do something big. This church isn't going anywhere. People may come and people may go, but there will be a gospel presence in this city for years to come. And what are you doing with your life? What are we doing with our talent? You see, the reality is we are living this parable right now. The master has gone away. He has been gone away for a long time. We don't know when he's coming back. But here's the question I want to ask you today. What is it that he has entrusted to us? What is it that he has entrusted to us today that we are going to be responsible for the way that we handle it when he returns? And I mean something more significant than what's in your bank account, something more significant than what your career is, something more significant than what your family is, something more significant than what your house looks like, something more significant than the car you drive. What has been entrusted to us today that we will be held accountable for when Jesus returns? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And taking it to the people in our world. How are you doing with that? You see, that is more valuable than any money could ever be. When I watched the movie Black Panther, of course I love the action. My boys love the action. It's fun to watch the action. It was interesting. But I kept sensing underneath this, this question, what are we supposed to do with this unbelievable gift we've been given. Now, I didn't immediately think of the parable of the talents, but a few weeks later I was reading the parable of the talents and I said, that's exactly the same question that is being asked in this parable. What's our responsibility to the world and to our master? Matthew 28 tells us our responsibility. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. What are you risking to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Across the nation, and next door to your neighbor. What risk are you living with to see God's investment in you 
returned, multiplied for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray together.